Hello and welcome to Spirit Pig. Inspired by the mission 7 Billion Fulfilled People, I track down the greatest thought leaders on the planet and interview them about happiness and fulfillment. Today I'm speaking with Professor Paul Dolan. Paul is a best-selling author of the book Happiness by Design, which Nobel Prize winner Daniel Kahneman described as bold and original. Paul is an internationally renowned expert on happiness, behavior, and public policy and conducts original research into measurement of happiness, its causes, and consequences. He is currently a professor and head of department in psychological and behavioral science at LSE. Paul, thanks so much for being here today. It's an absolute pleasure. In the past, we've typically measured happiness by asking people how they think rather than how they feel. Um, So a researcher, for example, might ask the question, overall, how satisfied are you with life nowadays? Why do you think that's a mistake? Yeah, that's a very good question to start with. Thank you. So um, I think the first thing to say is, in fact, that's not a question that people are answering. So if if you actually thought about that question, assuming it's a meaningful and relevant one, you'd probably take a little while to answer it, right? I mean, you've got to think about quite a few things that might go into the assessment of that answer, your, your income, your education, your, your marital status, and so on. People answer that question in less than two seconds. So it's unlikely that they're thinking about the answer to that question. They're answering something probably a bit simpler, like where do I see myself on that scale that they've given me to answer it on or something. So, so the first thing is it's probably not an answer to the question that's being asked. Um, secondly, let's assume that it is. Let's, let's assume that in those two seconds, people are able to calculate a, a reasonable response. What's going to go into the answer to that question will be a consideration of what things people think will make them happy in life. So how well I'm doing on particular dimensions and income and marital status and education are probably actually going to be quite important things that will play into the answer to that question. And they may not necessarily be, sometimes they are, but not necessarily correlated and associated with and causes of how I actually feel moment to moment as I go about my life and, and, and how I feel moment to moment as I go about my life, uh, I've argued is, a, is I think a more, more answerable question for people and actually a more meaningful question to use for the purposes of thinking about who's doing well and who's doing badly in society. Because if you think about, if you really think about who's, who is doing badly, uh, particularly for policy purposes, I think that's important. It's, it's people who are experiencing life badly. They're depressed. They're suffering from mental health problems. Being very highly correlated with how they answer the question, how satisfied they are with their life, but not perfectly so. And so I would much rather directly focus on measuring what really matters, which is, which is the pain and the suffering and the you know, happiness uh, that people experience as they go about their daily life. And when we're talking about happiness, it's pleasure and purpose over time. All three words are critical, right? No, correct. You've obviously done some reading on me. Brilliant. So pleasure and purpose over time. Uh, absolutely. So first of all, I think when people think about happiness, when we use that in, in lay language, we probably think about pleasure. Right? We think about, about fun and excitement and contentment and the obverse of that, which would be you know, misery and sadness and anxiety and stress and worry. I think what's important, they are, you know, experiences of pleasure are clearly fundamentally important to us. But also are, and also, are experiences of things that we find purposeful. So things that we consider to be worthwhile, meaningful, fulfilling. And importantly, they're located in what we do, right? So I'm thinking this is quite a meaningful conversation we're having right now. It feels meaningful. It's actually quite fun too. But I'm sure we could both think of other things that we'd be doing right now that would be more fun. And I, and, and I argue that a happy life is one that contains a good balance between pleasure and purpose. And it's 
really important that it's not the same for either in equal measure or across individuals, right? You might be more, you might be happier overall by having more pleasure than purpose, me by having more purpose than pleasure. But it's for us to, each of us to work out what the right balance between those twin sets of feelings or sentiments, as I call them, uh, should be. The overtime bit is absolutely critical. We, we, we are using our time now to have this interview and we are using time that we're never going to get back again. It's the scarcest resource we have. And in my experience of policymakers in particular, they don't really spend a lot of time thinking about time. They don't spend a lot of time thinking about how they can design policies and interventions that make it easier for people to use their time in ways that will make them happier. And so I think since we all would prefer to be not just happier, but also happier for longer, it's absolutely critical that we include that duration element in. So pleasure and purpose over time. Having children, for many people, describe it as you know one of the most uh, meaningful and purposeful activities possible. But if your only metric was pleasure, then no one in their right mind would ever go near having children. And so you've got to have that balance, don't you? You do. And obviously, a lot of purpose comes for, for many people in, 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 in time spent with their children. Um, and, you know, I, I, it was a very important personal decision for me. If I was thinking about when I was thinking about having to have children, insofar as I made that decision informed by any evidence, it um, would suggest that from a pleasure uh, point of view, you're absolutely right. I shouldn't bother because as anyone who has children will tell you, if they're being honest, their children bring them, you know, some extreme moments of joy, but very, very long periods of stress, anxiety and worry. So where does the happiness from children show up? I mean, it's actually worth saying that they don't have to make us happy, right? I mean, all you need to do is get pleasure um, from sex. Um, the kid comes out, looks like you, which which quite remarkably they, they do and scarily so especially when they're your daughter, um, they come out looking like you and, and that's it. You bond with them and they do just enough to stop you killing them. So um, it's, it, it's not, you know, they don't have to make you happy, but I think if they do, and insofar as they do, I think it's, it's almost certainly because they make you feel that what you're doing uh, with them and maybe sometimes in life too has a point to it in a way that might not have existed before you had children. And you, it's important to say that you don't have to have children to get purpose. Mm. Um, uh, for me, it's been important, but I get purpose through work as well. And, and other people get purpose through an allotment or, um, you know, tending the garden or, or walking the dog or playing bridge or volunteering, doing all these other things that, that make their lives feel like they're worthwhile and their experience is worthwhile alongside having fun. It's worth saying, though, this is really important, that memories and anticipations play into current experiences, right? So if now I remember a time that I enjoyed with my children a week or a month or a year ago, that makes me feel good now. So memories play into current experiences. And of course, a lot of the misery in life that we experience, particularly anxiety and stress and worry, is about anticipation of the future. Yeah. As in most of us, most of what we worry about, nearly all that we worry about, in fact, not always, but most of, is yet to happen. Or like regretting the past, but like anywhere but right here. Yeah, exactly. So, so very little of how we feel um, is in the moment in that sense. But the activities that we engage in capture how we feel in the moment and, and the time you know we spend um, with our children or doing the things that bring us purpose, like the garden or walking the dog or volunteering, are important because they make us feel happy in a broad sense in the experience itself. Some US data has shown something quite interesting. It's um, not only does happiness not increase with income, it actually starts to decrease in the highest income groups. Is, is it that right? Yeah, it's interesting. So the first thing to say about that is that that's correlational data. So we can never, 
it's very hard. We don't have any randomized controlled trials where we allocate people to being rich and poor okay. or rich or poor, I should say, not and poor, rich or poor, and then see how happy they are as a result of the randomization. That would be that would be the way that you would establish what's called the treatment effect. That would be the treatment effect of income. Uh, what we have is a is a conflation of the treatment effect, the effects of income that cause you to be miserable or happy and a selection effect of some people being more inclined and predisposed, maybe indeed driven by how happy they are to be rich or poor. But let's leave let's leave all that to one side um, and just discuss the correlations as as if they were causal. That's a big massive leap for an academic. <laughs> let's do it. Let's do it. I think, <laughs> but I think it's really I think it's just interesting as a conversation. I mean it, this is not we're not trying to write a scientific paper now, right? So we're just having a nice chat. So, you know, look what if it were the case that those correlations said something meaningful about causation. What if it were the case that people, as you as you say, we find in these data, in those highest income categories, are actually not just any happier, but they're actually less happy than people in in middle to middle middle high income categories? Seems to be a pretty interesting discussion point. Yeah. And for me, it would come to a lot to do with how we use our time again, right? So, on your quest to get richer. You live further away. You, you work further away from home. You spend, and that's that's been shown as a you know that people who earn more money commute further. So you're spending more time away from people and activities that you enjoy, doing activities that you don't enjoy, to generate more income that you don't always spend wisely in the sense of maximising happiness. Um, and so it kind of it's not surprising therefore, that we might not find the kinds of associations that we might expect to see with with uh, income um, and not surprising that we that we might see that people as they get as they chase more money, maybe they get more stressed. I start now looking at other rich people like me and I'm not as rich as them uh, in a way that I cared less when I wasn't so rich. Um, and my attention, which is the scarcest resource of all, that's the critical word in all of this attention, what you pay attention to, I start paying attention to things that actually make me less happy as I get richer. But really what I really want to fundamentally stress is that poverty makes people miserable. Yeah. I don't want anyone thinking, I don't want anyone thinking that to be poor is good um, because of precisely for these attentional reasons, when you're worrying about how you're going to pay the bills, feed the kids, you know, uh, pay the rent or whatever, then that's very attention seeking, you know, in a, in a bad way and quite obviously makes you feel miserable. So, you know, you need to be basically, you know, um, uh, uh, have a basic level of income and, you know, ideally a bit bit more besides, but not necessarily that much more. You need to be, you know, a little bit educated, but certainly not have a PhD. Um, you know, you need to, and I think what happens, the problem is that we get addicted, right? It's just a bit like everything, income and status and education can become an arms race. So we, we get a big happiness hit from low levels of consumption um, and we then keep chasing more of it and we need more and more of it to get less and less return and we don't know when to stop basically in society in society not only do we know not know as individuals but society constructs narratives uh my second book is going to be called the narrative trap um must, uh, around stories around how we ought to be living that feed that addiction they just keep telling you that you can't have enough and you need more and more and so if that's the narrative, that's the story that everyone believes, buys into from a young age, from just growing up, then to try and break that is, is, is kind of... Well, it's really hard, right? Super if hard. You took a, it is really hard. If you took a higher paying job, right, no one would ask you a question about why you did that. Right? I mean, that's just what you do, right? That's just obvious. 
if you if you say I've I've I'm take, I've taken a lower paying job, people look at you like you're a lunatic, right? I mean, it might be that you have a shorter commute, better colleagues, a much better purpose in your life, in in, in your work. But all those things require explanation and justification in a way that um, taking a job on the basis of income doesn't. We are what we pay attention to. What's what's that all about? Yeah, I mean, it's a very simple um, uh, statement, really, in the sense that if you imagine if you imagine a company producing widgets, there are two ways that they can produce more widgets. Basically, they have more inputs, more land, labor, capital, or they have a more efficient production process to convert those inputs into widgets. Take happiness. You can be happier in one of two ways, essentially, have more inputs, right. have more money, uh, have, have more of the good things in life that make you feel happy and or have a more efficient production process that converts those inputs into happiness. And that production process is attention. So take income, for example. It's not just directly. It doesn't, you don't just get money and it makes you happy or otherwise. There's a production process that you use to convert that into units of happiness, and that's attention. So if you get richer and you constantly paid attention to the fact that you were earning more money and that you were rich, it would make you very happy. You'd be happy all the time because you'd be thinking about how rich you are. But what happens is we don't pay attention to money for very long, right? Especially after the pay rise, we quickly interpret, make sense of it. It's not that much. Other people are earning more than me. And, you know, I get on to um, arguing with the family and having a terrible commute. So um, it's the things that we pay attention to that drive our happiness. And so uh, we need to we need to be thinking much more clearly and carefully as individuals and policymakers about how we allocate attention more effectively we're policymakers. i mean yeah like you said you've been i think over two and a half two and a bit decades um what is the yeah, biggest you just, feel, you, you just made me feel very old there then no thanks. no no you um you started <laughs> interning when you were like eight years old you're fine <laughs> nicely nicely done nicely done Phew. <laughs> what would be what what's been like the biggest headache or roadblock standing in the way of stuff. Is there anything in particular? You mentioned that, that people don't spend that much time thinking about how people spend their time and how to maximize that for happiness. But what have you found the biggest roadblock in that whole world? Yeah, I think there is a question. In there. I think it's a very important one is um, the barriers to doing something that on the face of it is self-evidently obvious. I mean, it seems to me that it's evidently obvious that policymakers ought to be designing interventions that improve the lives of people that they're serving and improve those lives in ways that people recognize and appreciate uh, therefore in ways that make them happier so so i think that's um so the question then is why aren't we doing that and i think um there's a number of answers to that question i think one is because i don't think for a long time we thought we could measure it um you know asking people how happy they are is a bit, bit flaky isn't it we can find out how much <laughs> they earn you know we can find out whether they go to university or not and finish their degrees. I mean, they're, they're much more measurable and, you know, quantities. Um, but as we as we realize that we can ask people questions that they can give us answers to sensibly about how they feel, as we find that they're correlated and associated with the things that we would expect them to be to some large degree, um, then we can start using those data better to populate policy interventions. I think maybe happiness maybe is seen as maybe a bit flaky, a bit trivial. I mean, Policymakers shouldn't be concerned with happiness, but if you phrase that the other way around, should they seek to reduce misery, then you would be pretty pathological to say that they shouldn't, right? So I think there's maybe a language problem as well. I think it's important maybe in policy that we use misery and suffering um, as opposed to happiness. Um, so there's a number of different reasons, but um, I think the, the world is changing. There are governments and and organisations that are kind of taking taking well-being measures more seriously in in in, in as, as indicators of you know progress and ways to evaluate policy interventions. 
it's really, really hard to change people's behaviors and happiness by just getting them to think differently. And so, you know, you need to change what people do, not just how they think. How, how, how exactly do we go about doing that? I know you, you've got like a, a three word summary, which come just in a nutshell, but like, yeah, how, how do we go about doing that? There are a number of times I'm sure where you have said, I'm going to do this. I'm going to exercise more. I'm going to eat less or more. I'm going to read more books. I'm going to do all these things. And those intentions are very weak in terms of explaining behavior. The data on that are very compelling. We say all sorts of stuff that we don't do. So why is that? Well, partly sometimes because those intentions are the wrong ones, but partly and largely because we just don't know how to implement the intentions. It's actually all about implementation intentions. That's really what it's called in the literature. It's about how you take an intention and convert it into an action. So when you say, I'm going to go to the gym, that's not, you don't just suddenly emerge there in your gym kit ready to train. You, there's a series of discrete behaviors that have led you to that point, which include getting up, putting the trainers on, going out the house. You know, and you can design all of the, you can design your environment. That's why the book's called Happiness by Design. Organize your life in ways that make it easier for you to do those things. Evidence shows very clearly you're more likely to go to the gym if you do it with somebody else. You're more likely to do it if you make a public promise to go. You're more likely to do it if you make it a routine and a habit to go at the same time, the same place with the same person every day. All, these, all of these things that you can read in the book that I haven't got time to go into now will give you those tools that will equip you to be able to implement those intentions. So that's why it's change what you do, not how you think, because you can't think yourself happier. Well, you can, but it's hard work. What you can do is design your environment and organize your activities and life in ways that make it easier for you to do those things that will make you feel better. And on the flip side, if you don't want to do something or you don't want someone else to do something, make it hard. Make it hard. I mean, it's a lot harder for you to, I mean, it's very easy now for you to use your smartphone and to get addicted to the internet and social media, right? Because it's there. If you leave your phone in another room, or you go where there's no Wi-Fi signal or 3G network or whatever. It's just clearly, clearly, it's clearly much harder. What does a fulfilled life mean to you? I always say that I get I get pleasure from going out. I get uh, purpose from work, and I get per- pleasure and purpose from working out. So I think they're kind of the three things. You know, uh, going out, work, and working out. They're the three things that give me that balance. I think it's not. It's not just about a fulfilled life. It's not just about a pleasurable one we talked about earlier. Yeah. It's about finding ways to balance those activities. And for me, in answer to that question for somebody else, I would say work it out for yourself. I mean, that's, it's not for me to prescribe what that is. Uh, it's me to give you the tools and the framework that will enable you to make that decision easier. But it's not for me to tell you. Do you, do you, do you use the words purpose and fulfillment almost interchangeably? Do you, or do you see them as different things? I do. No, I do use them interchangeably. I, I, I use them interchangeably in, 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 so, you know, this, this conversation has been both fulfilling and purposeful. I don't, I can't see that there's a distinction uh, in, 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 in how I would use those terms in that context. Last but not least, if you had to just give our listeners one piece of actionable advice just to go away and do that, they can start doing today, something small. What, what would you say to them? Ah, well, that's really easy. Isn't it? I've obviously got to buy happiness by design. Um, they would have, <laughs> That's a very, very simple answer. But they would have listened to this, podca- to this uh, podcast or this, to this interview um, and, and hopefully have been, if they don't buy the book, at least inspired to think about how they use their attentional resources and their time uh, in ways that are more likely to make them happier for longer. I think if they do that, then, then, that's, then, then our time has been well spent together. Paul, thank you so, so much for speaking with all of us today. I really appreciate it. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much.